This is going to be a long series about lessons from the master, master class in living. The last couple weeks, there were lessons about how to keep the Sabbath and uh, how to behave at the table. And this morning, uh, Luke 14, beginning at verse 25. Listen then for the voice of God. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and child, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, ha, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war with against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation with the other, still a long way off, and will ask for terms for peace. In the same way, those of you who do, who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, what can it be made salty again? If it's fit neither for the soil nor for manure pile, it's thrown out. So whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. The word of the Lord. Are you sure? I taught in uh, two Christian high schools for a total of 10 years. That's 20 semesters of trying to help students grapple with salvation by grace alone. That's 20 semesters of their relentless resistance to salvation by grace alone. They would say, but you have to do your part. You have to believe and behave. You have to be good, go to church and pray and stuff. Otherwise, why, why bother? Otherwise, it's not fair. Every year, in every semester, in every class, someone would voice the conviction that there must be a measure of human responsibility. It can't all be God's grace. We must have to do something. And I'd respond that anything taking salvation out of God's hands and putting it into human hands dilutes, diminishes, or denies the gospel. It's grace at the beginning, grace in the middle, grace at the end. 
Grace straight up. No salt on the rim, no ice cubes, no splash of tonic. Grace. We are made right with God through Christ. And we can't add anything or take anything away from that. And therefore, let us not drape it with other requirements. Additional acts of merit. Ours is only the response. So it turns out that Luke seems to be in on this outlandish gospel. He records Jesus telling parables. These are the last couple of weeks. He records Jesus telling parables where the humble, the poor, and those unable to repay are welcome to the banquet table. He tells of Jesus breaking bread or breaking Sabbath rules and table etiquette, dismantling any idea that our efforts ensure our standing with God. He proclaims the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Good news for the poor, freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, and setting the oppressed free. And then then it's as if he hears the resistance. He feels the pushback against grace. It's as if he can see the kid in the second row raising his hand, but we have to do our part. There has to be some requirement, some law, something that we do. To which Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Yikes. Feels like grace just left the building. Amen. Dear friends, take Jesus at his literal word and none of us would find our place as followers of Jesus. Take Jesus at his literal word and we would be required by way of response to love our enemies and hate our parents. Take Jesus at his literal word and we would be required to love our neighbor but hate our children. Take Jesus at his literal word and we're stuck with ridiculous requirements and crazy contradictions. Therefore, this must be an example. This is where we create wiggle room. This must be an example of what Fred Craddock calls sacred excess, the gospel as hyperbole. Maybe this is just Jesus at his hyperbolic best overstating things to make a point. Maybe this is just rhetorical overreach. You can't believe what politicians say. They're just saying stuff. 
Really? It's just hyperbole? There has to be something more than that. Biblical scholars note that in Semitic languages, the word here for hate is more akin to disregard and that it's often used not as an effective, affective quality, but as a measure of contrast. It suggests something more like love less. It's similar to the language of Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Jacob have I loved, but Esau I've loved less. If anyone comes to me and does not love, their, love less their father and their mother, they cannot be my disciples. But neutered hyperbole loses its bite to mix metaphors. <laughs> because hyperbole is what cuts to the quick. It's what wrenches the heart. And just because it's hyperbole, it doesn't mean it's not true. So, if our standing with God is a matter of grace in Jesus Christ, what's our response? Are those saved by grace to love family less and love Jesus more? How do we count the cost before we go into battle? The answer is, in part, might be found in the first few words of our text. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, Because here in the gospel, Luke is tracing the path of Jesus toward the cross. And therefore, one way to read this text is an attempt by Jesus to thin out the crowd by saying to them, in effect, look, if you're just here for the grace and the glory, if you're just here for the blessing and the banquet, if you're just here for the healing and the hoopla, then you need to hear the rest of the story. You need to count the cost. You need to weigh the demands. You, you need to carefully consider the repercussions. You need to take into account whether you can afford to follow or whether you can afford not to follow. Jesus is thinning out the crowd by defining discipleship. To follow Jesus, your identity will not be constructed along family lines or social status. As a disciple of Jesus, your defining allegiance will not be your possessions, your paternity, 
your position, your political party, and then I ran out of P words. As a disciple of Jesus, you even run the risk of alienating kith and kin. Because there will be no casual devotion, no part-time follower, no minimal fidelity or splintered heart. This will demand your whole being. Because the journey is toward the cross. In the words of Scott Jose, Therefore, live in such a way as to make clear that you have put to death the things of the world, its addiction to power, its adoration of only the beautiful and successful, its cutthroat ways of climbing to the top of any and every heap, its love of violence and intimidation and war. To live under a crossbar was to engage in a form of living death, of sacrificial living for the sake of others and for the sake of the kingdom of God. The essential question underneath all of the hyperbole is a question of allegiance. Who will you follow in this world? As those being made right with God in Christ, Will you embody his way of being? Will you respond in obedience? Now, you're still with me? Big heavy stuff for a holiday weekend. There's a great deal of hand-wringing hand in religious circles about the decline of the church in the Western world. I don't think that my neighbors who only go to church for weddings or funerals are concerned, but I can assure you that the church world is concerned. As a friend, as a friend said to me recently, when news media, social media, and consumer media get 18 hours a day, preaching for 20 minutes a day, one day a week, doesn't have a prayer. <laughs> in the flag, this is the title of a book, in the flag, the cross, and the station wagon, a graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. Diana Butler Bass writes this. Many people are just bored. Many of my friends, faithful churchgoers for decades, are dropping out because religion is dull. The purview of folks who never want to change, who always want to fight about someone else's sex life. On Sundays, other things are more interesting. The New York Times, sports, shopping, Facebook, family time, working in the garden, 
biking, hiking, sipping lattes at the local coffee shop, meeting up at the dog park, getting the kids to their soccer game. And look, I'm not equating worship attendance with cross-bearing. But discipleship is clearly swimming against the flood of contemporary culture. And this world doesn't afford us the luxury of neutrality. The allegiance of our hearts has consequences. The direction in which we set our hearts shapes how then we live. So with the rhetorical tool of exaggeration, Jesus is calling us to examine whom we serve. A gospel of grace or a gospel of self-interest? Christ or culture? Now, I'm almost done. With apologies to Jesus, I'm a failure at trying to love my family less than I love Jesus. I love my wife and kids with all the hope that this old world can hold. And truth be told, I'm happy to let myself off the hyperbolic hook by claiming that the best way that I know to give my heart to God is to give my heart to family, friend, neighbor, enemy. But dear friends, it seems to me that our first response to God's grace in Christ is to offer our hearts, even knowing that there will be substantial cost. I know that's uniquely religious language. I know that it's decidedly individualistic and sort of mushy. But in response to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, can we align our hearts with Jesus? Can we follow him against the grain? Can we be disciples who serve a master. What's the cost? This isn't about salvation. This isn't about salvation. God already has already taken care of that. This is about the caliber and character of our response. This isn't about earning anything or securing anything, but it is about a life of discipleship, a life of following the way of Jesus, loving our enemies, forgiving as we've been forgiven, turning the other cheek, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that, the way of Jesus, all of that is only plausible and possible if our heart's allegiance is pledged first to Jesus. 
May God give us the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the courage, and the unbending will to reconnoiter our hearts toward Jesus and in doing so change our way of being. Amen.